The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on Twitter to join these conversations live. And check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets. And now, on to our Lead Lag Live discussion, hosted by Michael Guyon. My name is Michael Guyot, publisher of the Lead Lag Report. Joining me for the hour is Mark Rusin. Um, came across Mark from others that were following you, Mark, and I thought uh, it was good to have a conversation here around dividends because uh, there's quite a bit of uh, interesting opportunities now. But Mark, for those who are not familiar with you, introduce yourself. Who are you? How did you get interested in markets? And why did you specifically gravitate towards uh, yield and dividend investing. Yeah, Michael, uh, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Um, you know, my, my uh, background is uh, I'm a CPA here in uh, in California. I had my bachelor's in accounting. Uh, worked for a, a big four accounting firm for uh, about seven years, and then went into the uh, the world of commercial real estate and and home building for uh, a number of years. During the pandemic, you know, really honed in on uh, building out kind of my own brand here on uh, on social media. Started my own business with with Rusin Financial. And uh, just recently, actually went uh, went full time with that. And you know, there's a lot of exciting things that we have going on. Um, Michael, you mentioned the the YouTube channel where we we do focus a lot on dividend stocks and building wealth by utilizing dividend stocks, ETFs, uh, a lot of REITs as well. I'm here uh, active on Twitter and Instagram. We also have a investing newsletter that goes out on a weekly basis, just kind of breaking down um, market trends and stock deep dives again with a with a focus on dividend stocks. And then you know doing what I consider you know wealth coaching, where where I'm working one on one with clients and just you know really helping them understand investing, um, portfolio construction, and and things like that. So you know for me getting into I, I like the passive income, um, the passive idea with, 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 with how dividends come along. Um, you know, it, it's a, a safer way of investing for myself. And then just truly gravitating towards that power of compounding dividends is really what um, brought me into the world of, of dividend stocks. Is there anything you miss about working at a big four accounting firm? <laughs> uh, not much. I mean, besides the the late nights and, and missing uh, the families. But, uh, um, you know, I I, I did take a lot of great things away from it, um, really understanding how these larger corporations run their businesses, um, getting a, uh, a new understanding on, you know, truly the, the financial statements and how these CEOs, CFOs can really uh, change things to, to make it look a little different on how the business is actually operating. Um, so, so there were a lot of positives, um, but, you know, don't, can't say I miss it all too much. Okay, so so you have the accounting background. I'm sure that's obviously helpful when it comes to doing analysis right. on individual stocks, right? So talk about how some of your 
education, some of your professional experience factors into screening for potential investment ideas? Yeah. So a lot of my focus is, is first and foremost is, is fundamental. So, you know, I'm, I'm in, uh, the 10 K's, the 10 Q's press releases on a, on a weekly basis and just looking through these, um, different metrics I'm looking at, you know, obviously everyone kind of starts with price to earnings, but uh, you know, I, I break it down a lot further. Free cash flow is going to be a huge thing for me, um, especially as a, a dividend investor. That's where dividends are, are truly paid from. A lot of folks want to just look at, you know, your your EPS payout ratio, but I, I take it a step further. I want to look at free cash flow because that's really how much on, a, on an operating ba- basis and true cash a company is earning. Um, and this is really going to tell you the safety of a dividend, how much, you know, if they have debt on hand, how much they're going to be able to uh, pay down on debt as well. So, you know, a lot of my analysis is going to be uh, fundamental. I, I do do some some technical. It's very um, basic when you look at some of these other strategies and, and technicians that are out there. Um, but you know, I, I don't just toss it aside. So, but first and foremost, it's going to be uh, focusing on on the fundamentals of a business. You know, looking both at the balance sheet, income statement, as well as the uh, the cash flow statement, as I had mentioned. So, just that you mentioned that you don't really focus too much on technicals, but you still look at it and. As you were saying it, it, it didn't dawn on me until you said it that it, that's probably a truism that if you're going to focus much more on dividend investing, you really don't care about a chart because the idea is you're supposed to get some degree of consistent cash flow. So who cares about the price now? What matters is is that is that money stream good? Exactly. Yeah, it, it's all about the the passive income allowing. You know, dividend investing is a, a form of uh, a patient way of investing because it's it's really that that buy and hold. For the most part, um, I'm going to use the the technicals in terms of uh, entry price when I'm looking to to get into a stock um, or or add some there. You know, I, I don't want to just ignore that uh, the technical side of things. I also do you know ways to to boost my income. I'll, I'll do a lot of um, safer and I, I have the, the air quotes there um, safer form of options trading as well. So, you know, utilizing covered call strategies, utilizing cash secured put strategies, just as a way to you know not only leverage stocks that I already own with the cover called side, but for stocks that I'm looking to get into, I'll use those those cash secured put side as well, just as a way to generate more income on a monthly basis. All right. So, so let's, since you mentioned, let's go with that as a direction for a bit here. Talk about what a cover call strategy is. How does it enhance income? What are the pitfalls and risks? And what do you think that uh, people should be really considering when they implement such a strategy. So with with covered calls, you know, you're you're really not uh, leveraging cash. You're, you're more leveraging stocks that you own. So so one option contract equates to a hundred shares. So if we use you know Apple for an example, um, if I own a hundred shares of Apple, I can sell a covered call at a higher price. So if Apple's trading at one hundred and fifty dollars right now, say I have big, uh, I have huge gains locked in Apple right now. I'm looking at the valuation. I'm looking at the technicals and say, you know, this thing looks um, a little bit uh, outdated here in terms of the run. Uh, I know with the, the Fed pressures, a lot of macro pressures on the stock market as a whole. And in the near term, maybe I think Apple's going to come back a little bit. Well, I can sell a covered call at, say, uh, $160. So um, essentially, this is going to allow me to take in premium because there's going to be someone on the other side that's going to be buying that call and say, hey, I think Apple's going to go higher. I'm going to buy that call from uh, from Mark here. So for me selling it, I collect a premium on day one. That's my premium to uh, to keep forever. And if the stock price stays below that strike price of, I think I said this one at $160, uh, that, that's my gain. As I collect the, the premium, there's going to be a strike price or sorry, a um, an expiration date on there. So there is a, a long dated uh, expiration date. So I usually I do 
around two weeks out on these these covered calls. I could go out to a month, um, but somewhere in those the two week to four week range, I'll sell these covered calls. And you know, again, if the stock price stays below, I keep the premium. If the stock price goes above that that strike price of $160, well, that's where I will actually be on the hook to sell my shares at the $160 strike. So again, there's no uh, cash component for me because I already own the 100 shares of Apple. I will give those to the person that it'll automatically be transferred to the person that bought those call options and I'll be left. Um, but again, I was comfortable getting out of shares of Apple at that 160 level. So, you know, you got to kind of kind of weigh the, the risk there. But again, the downside is, is if we have a huge rip in the market and say Apple, you know, shoots up to 180, well, my gains are capped because I own the stock and we, we sold that call option at uh, $150. I had the strike at 160. So my gains are going to be within that $10 range from 150 to 160. But anything beyond that 160, you know, I collected premium, but anything above that 160 to 180 is not going to be mine. So that's really the downside is if the uh, the stock really rips higher prior uh, to expiration. Do you get the sense that with the explosion of options activity and interest that most people are even aware of these types of ways of using options? Uh, you know, it seems like from everything I've read and seen, and you know, I, I don't know the actual hard data on it, that more and more options trading is used to more for speculation as opposed to uh, as a way of uh, enhancing income, so to speak. Yeah, I think that's a, a a great a great point, and something I've seen a lot is you know, especially on social media, you have a lot of folks that um, see these these people post about uh, huge gains in, in options trading, and you know, a lot of what they consider YOLO trading and these get rich quick schemes. So you know, for me and my approach, um, you know, I'm trying to you know kind of take advantage of that. A lot of these people saying. Um, looking just to to buy call options and and uh, and buy put options, looking for a huge downside. Well, that's just going to juice up the premiums even higher. And you know the the focus for me when it comes to options is is really just focusing on you know a, a handful of stocks or so. Um, and and it could be ETFs as well. You know, like the the triple Qs is one that I use. Um, SPY with the S and P five hundred. You know, a lot of these stocks have have huge or ETFs have huge premiums baked in, um, and a lot of People have gotten excited about the idea of of options trading, especially you know the the bull market run that we've gone through um, prior to 2022, and just to the the desire for people and young investors to try and get rich quick and and not truly understanding the options market. Um, so again, yeah, my my approach is more of on the the safe side of things and just adding more. Um, uh, Juicing those those dividends is the way I like to look at it, uh, a form of passive income for me. And I'm going to assume, this is just from my own experience, from a social media perspective, that uh, just like dividend investing is kind of slow and steady, doesn't necessarily have these uh, outsized periods of returns, uh, probably growing a social media presence, uh, focusing on dividends has got to be the same, right? Because you go on YouTube, you look at videos that are trending, you look at things that people want to search for. It tends to be more the kind of get rich quick type of type of videos, right? And even on Twitter, to your point, you know, FinTwit, you'll have somebody that shows some massive gain from some out of the money call option or out of the money put option that they did, and they, those guys get all the attention and uh, likes and retweets and follows. Whereas that's really not sort of a sustainable growth trajectory for most uh, investors. Yeah, I mean, it, it's all about consistency, um, you know, sticking with it. You know, we, we, we saw it in the last uh, the bull market the last few years where, you know, I think we just crossed the, the one year mark I had saw on, on uh, Twitter this morning of the um, the upstart debacle where they're, you know, they were training at you know, nearly four hundred dollars and now they're at that 14. Well, a lot of those folks that were just, you know, aimlessly pushing a lot of these 
growth stocks without, you know, truly looking at fundamentals, valuations, um, you know, sticking to the dividend uh, investing strategy during those times where, you know, why, why would I invest, you know, five grand in the stock to make a uh, hundred dollars in, in dividends when I can go over here and this stock was up, you know, 20% in the last four days. Um, you know, I think just understanding the, the history of the market, the ebbs and flows that go along with it, the consistency without, you know, having to, to, to worry about these, these big swings, those 20% swings. Cause a lot of these ultra growth stocks are down, you know, 60, 78, some of them 90%. Um, over the past year and just understanding the volatility that comes along with that. I think the the consistency that comes with with uh, dividend investing, um, the income that continues, you know, whether a, a stock is is up or down one day, um, a lot of these consistent dividend payers, I'm still I'm still going to be able to count on my dividend and I can kind of cash flow that over the the future years. And that's something that, you know, gives me allows me to sleep well at night. All right. Now I want to focus on um, the word quality for a moment because it's very easy for somebody to see a yield uh, quoted on a stock. The yield obviously gets bigger when the stock price goes down, but quality has sounds like it has elements of subjective analysis when really it should be much more quantitative objective. Talk about how you define what makes for a quality dividend stock. Yeah. I'm, I'm looking for, you know, consistency uh, companies that have, you know, how they've performed in, in slow times as well as, you know, booming times, um, you know, so the, those consistent revenues, again, going back to uh, strong free cash flows, this is kind of, um, it also tells me, uh, you know, a balance sheet can tell me a lot. How you know efficient are these companies about, about utilizing assets, utilizing cash? How much cash do we have on hand? You know, when, when times get tough, how much can I be able to still rely on a on a dividend? Um, so, you know, consistent revenues, strong free cash flows, uh, a dividend growth, you know, that that's consistency. That's going to be, you know, more of these these mature companies that are, are able to withstand, um, you know, economic movements and then uh, the, the payout ratios. And then, you know, lastly, it's going to be which is going to go along with the efficiency of how well a company is run is these strong management teams, management teams that have been in place, you know, uh, um, something that comes to mind is is Lowe's. You know, Dr. L O W is a, a company that I like a lot. Home Depot and Lowe's. Obviously, the real estate market right now puts a lot of pressure on them. But I saw, you know, how CEO Marvin Ellison, who came in just this two years ago, he was an ex. Uh, he, he worked at J C Penney for a few years, but he was also ex Home Depot executive. And just knowing how you know Home Depot is really a gold standard when you look at their how efficient they they run their company. Um, from all of the efficiency, you know, metrics that you can look at, return on assets, and 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 how well they're able to build their balance sheet. Just knowing that he's coming over to Lowe's, knowing the gap at the time between the two companies, and how that has really um, closed over the uh, past few years. You know, that that is something that you know I, I was looking at early on, and just seeing how well and how well he continues to improve that company. So you know, management plays a a huge role in companies, especially you know, dividend paying. Uh, companies that I'm looking at. Uh, I see some people want to ask questions. Uh, if you want to ask a question, just follow me and check your DMs and we'll coordinate and then I'll prompt you. Um, it's interesting you mentioned Home Depot and Lowe's as, as examples of stocks that you look at. Do you factor in macro slowdowns at all, maybe even just in terms of weighting a particular different idea? So for example, in the case of Lowe's or Home Depot, right, you can make an argument that 
they could be having some serious headwinds, assuming that housing, which likely does, right, keeps on deteriorating. How do you factor in, you know, kind of the broader secular cycle with the fundamental bottom up? Yeah, macro is a, uh, you know, something that can't be ignored as well and something I take into consideration at a, a good, you know, portion. And again, that's kind of what, um, you know, at the, I, I call it the dividend investor's edge is that weekly newsletter that I put out. And, you know, the, the weekly one is really focused on on macro, you know, as a whole and just helping investors understand what has been going on in the market, um, what to look, you know, ahead for if there's, you know, big, say we have a Fed meeting, a, a rate hike that's coming or a, a potential rate hike. And, you know, so macro is a big uh, component. And, and you had mentioned the, the housing slowdown. And then on the, you know, kind of on the flip side of that is I'm looking at, okay, well, we have interest rates that just went from, you know, sub 2%. And now we're, folks are paying, you know, over 7% in, you know, the power that uh, what you can afford now is much less. So there's going to be a lot more folks that I'm going to see now staying put in their homes and, and, you know, deciding not to move, which can kind of bring back the, those Home Depot c- customers, those, those Lowe's customers. So albeit there are, there are some, um, there's natural headwinds for those two companies. Um, I do see that, that other side of the component too. And that, that's really what the, the boom was during, uh, COVID as well was a lot of folks that were, were staying put just because of lockdowns. It wasn't because of interest rates. It was because more so because of, uh, lockdowns. So, um, so to answer your question, yes, macro is a, a key component to look for. And, you know, if you were to look at my, if I were to open up my portfolio right now, you would see that healthcare is my my largest exposure. So, albeit I'm a, a buy and hold um, investor, I'm not a a buy and just you know forget investor. I'm gonna make trims where I see you know valuations or headwinds for certain sectors down. You know, energy has creeped up is is one that in 2022 that has you know crept up my uh, portfolio list. Uh, and again, you know, health healthcare. So at the top, you're going to see companies like uh, a J and J, Abvi, uh, Bristol Myers Squibb, and, and then you know, obviously, a lot of uh, ETFs. I think that's a um, a major component and should be a major component of anyone's um, portfolio. You know, regardless of whether you're a growth investor or a dividend investor. All right, let, let's go with the ETF side for a bit. I want to go back to healthcare shortly, but uh, if you're if you're looking at ETFs for dividends, to what types of ETFs do you like to focus on and why then bother, I guess, with individual stocks, right? Because if it's a strategy in an ETF wrapper, it's tax efficient, as we know. Uh, why not just make that your sole opportunity set? So when I'm working with with clients or talking to, to folks about investing, you know, I always focus on, um, you know, ETFs being at the center. You know, you want to have a, a strong backbone. This is, this is the same for whether it's uh, investing, relationships, you know, at work, you want to have, you know, that that foundation that you can fall back on when, when times get tough, especially what we're going through right now. And they just, they add diversity, diversification. They um, the, the ETFs that I focus on are going to be low cost because, you know, you want to be careful about expense ratios. Those can really eat into fees over the years. But, you know, having that, you know, for me, it's a, uh, you know, 40 to 50% weighting uh, ETFs as a whole. Um, you know, so, so for me, the S&P 500 is going to be a major focus always. Um, that's just going to be your, you know, your ultimate diversification ETF there. But in terms of dividend ETFs, the ones that I focus on primarily, SCHD, so that's a, a Schwab U.S. broad-based ETF. But, it, you know, it kind of it, it offers some nice growth potential. It offers a nice yield, but it also offers um, strong dividend growth. And you, you're gonna, I'm going to mention some of these dividend growth-focused ETFs, but actually SCHD um, is is outpacing those in terms of dividend growth over the past five years. So that's actually my favorite 
uh, dividend-focused ETF. Again, that's SCHD. Uh, other ones consider uh, to consider is the uh, an iShares dividend growth. So you have DGRO. You have a Vanguard dividend appreciation ETF, which is uh, VIG. And again, both of these are focused, you know, dividend-focused ETFs, but they're looking more for companies that are growing their their dividends on a on a consistent basis and e- increasing those. So you're going to see a lot of names like, like Lowe's and Home Depot. Um, like Visa, you'll see some Apple in there. And again, these are going to be, those two are are lower yield, but they're also increasing their dividends. So, you know, Apple increases at a 10% rate. Uh, Microsoft increased at 10% rate. Visa's up near 20% in terms of dividend growth over the past five years uh, on an annual basis. And then, you know, on the flip side, if you're looking, hey, you know, I don't want the the dividend growth, those, you know, 1% dividend yields, I'm looking for a little bit higher yield where the, then there's the, the Vanguard high yield uh, dividend ETF. Um, and that's VYM. So they're going to look at, you know, more for the mid range and higher yield. Uh, so you're going to see your, um, you know, maybe a lot of REITs on there. You're going to see uh, something like a, an Altria group that has, a, you know, 8% dividend there as well. So, um, and, and another way for me is, is you can look at, at REITs. That's a, you know, I, I try to, um, I have roughly about a 20 to 25% exposure, I would say to REITs. And, you know, I, I partner with uh, Brad Thomas, who you had on, uh, the lead lag um, on multiple occasions in the past. So, you know, him and I partnered together on on Seeking Alpha with a, a lot of uh, REIT material there. Um, so, you know, that's really opened my eyes a lot, uh, you know, working with him. And and, and that's a kind of a, a major focus where you can find yield if that's where what you're looking for. And uh, especially if you're, you know, towards, towards retirement and looking for just, you know, not looking for the growth, but looking for higher yield, REITs are a great place to look. I wonder how... Um the reversal and trend around share buybacks might impact dividend investing. And the reason I say that is you know, traditional finance would argue that there should be no difference to the end investor, whether it's a company that's paying out a dividend or reducing its shares outstanding with the same amount of dollars. Now you've got you know, taxes you know, being elevated on share buybacks and obviously higher interest rates, which probably makes it less palatable for uh, CEOs. Um, do you get the sense that there might be maybe sort of a, a little bit of a renaissance of, of, of more and more interest towards uh, dividend-heavy stocks just because there's not going to be as much buybacks as, as sort of the siren song? Yeah, I mean, that, that's a, a great point to bring up. I think in the near term, you know, with the knowing that that um, kind of that buyback tax is coming, I think we're going to have a, a big swing in, in share buybacks here towards the, the end of the year. But then, yeah, like you're saying, that that could flip um you know especially in these volatile times not only are folks looking more for passive income but they're looking more for safety and consistency and that's one thing that you know dividend stocks can um you know a lot of them can uh, provide to to an investor um you know it, it's not guaranteed we saw it during the pandemic where you know especially in the REIT sector you could have dividends that are cut you know no the, what we say is the safest dividend is the one that's just been paid or raised um, but you know, a lot of these companies, that's why, you know, you want to break down the fundamentals and look at the, um, how much safety is there, how much coverage is there in terms of free cash flow. But, you know, in terms of your question, I think, you know, after we get past this, uh, this year where we're going to go into that, that tax event, um, I don't think it'll have a, a huge impact just being that it is so low, but it could sway a lot more of these management teams on moving, um, you know, some of those dollars more towards investing. And then in terms of uh, investors portfolio, you know, with dividend stocks, people ask me, you know, a lot of the time is in terms of my account, you know, do you have, you know, all of your dividend stocks and retirement accounts that are like, you know, Roth IRAs, or are you in traditional? Well, um, I build out, you know, a lot of my, uh, my Roth IRA is, is filled with, with dividend stocks. And, you know, a lot of 
uh, I have a lot of REITs in there. So, you know, that's the, to answer that question um, that I get a lot. Yes, I hold, I try to hold as much as I can in terms of the dividend stocks in those uh, tax deferred accounts. All right. Well, let, let's talk about sort of the, the, the link between uh, dividend stocks and sectors which have more dividend payers um, and everything else, especially when you're in more volatile environments broadly, right? So I've, I've often made the argument that it makes sense that in high volatility states, money would flow into healthcare, consumer staples, utilities in particular, because uh, you can have high volatility, but these tend to be lower beta, less sensitive uh, to the broader market. But also, I think there is a perception among investors that uh, if you get that income right through a dividend, okay, fine, then who cares what the price is doing because you're getting a cash flow. Um, do, you, do you see any, have you done any research or see anything that would suggest that in a prolonged period of heightened volatility, uh, money does tend to flow much more to dividend plays as opposed to capital appreciation plays, which is you know much more growthy? Yeah, so for me, when I, I kind of break down uh, dividend stocks, is I I call it the uh, the total return investment because I, I don't want to focus. Ju- you know, when I'm kind of forecasting out, I don't want to just look at you know this is going to be my dividend income. Well, I, I understand because I, I do a lot of uh, investing in dividend growth stocks, so it, it kind of offers me that a little bit of growth potential. Um, albeit the the yield's going to be a little bit lower, but also get that dividend growth. So that kind of comes back to the calculation of yield on cost, which is, you know, how much did I originally invest and how much is that earning and dividend income now, say 10 years later? So something like Iron Mountain is a, uh, um, a, a REIT that focuses on, they're moving more towards data centers. Um, you know, they're the, uh, the paper shredding company that you see, uh, um, records management company. And, you know, at the time right now, if you were to buy Iron Mountain, you're going to be getting a, a 4% yield or so. My yield on cost is is closer to nine percent. So you know it's looking at the the total return investment, and I think that idea is what a lot of investors like. But it's also tough for them to see, especially you know younger investors, just looking at that year one dividend and not understanding the idea of how um, compounding works and the how that that dividend snowball effect can come into place. Because you know when you're getting paid that dividend, you can you know automatically go into your brokerage and turn on what's called DRIP, which is that dividend reinvestment plan, which is just going to take the dividend that you were paid, and it's going to reinvest those back into that same security that just paid them. So if, um, again, we'll stay with Iron Mountain. If Iron Mountain paid me $100 in dividend, I can have my DRIP on. It's going to turn around and pay and buy $100 worth of Iron Mountain. So it's really a way of, you know, I'm not adding any more money from my my account in a way. So I'm not, I didn't take any money out of my um, my Wells Fargo account or whatever, and, and put it into to buy more Iron Mountain. It's just automatically, and that's that compounding effect that I think draws a lot of people once they truly understand the power of compounding and and how dividend stocks work. It's not that year one, uh, it's not that year one dividend income. It's that year ten, year twenty dividend income that really makes a difference, and that's really how you know Warren Buffett has built his wealth over time. And when you look at his yield on cost for some of these companies, it's just outrageous for some, you know, like Coca Cola and stuff like that. Sure. So, so I mean, looking at, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll go through REITs and and regular dividend-paying stocks first. So, you know, trying to look at that consistent revenue growth, the consistency there. Um, but it, it kind of goes back to what I'd mentioned early on is is the free cash flow and, and looking at the 
the payout ratio, the coverage that we see, and and kind of the, it goes back to also the macro stuff that we talked about. Is this a, is this company in a sector that's really going to struggle here going forward? Where you know the the free cash flow might be X right now, but in a in a year right now, where we're you know we have a pending recession looking at us uh, potentially, depending on who you ask, um, this business is going to hit a rough patch where you know maybe the dividend uh, is still slightly safe. But maybe we're going from seeing 15% dividend growth down to 1% dividend growth, or we're going to have it be flat. Or, and looking at REITs on the other end, REITs are a little bit unique in the fact that you know we went did go through a, a fair share of cuts during the pandemic. Is because um, being a REIT, you get uh, um, you get to to kind of skip out on the the corporate taxes, but there's certain rules that you have to follow, and one of those being is you have to pay out 90% of your taxable income out to investors in the form of shareholders. So with REITs, you're going to have naturally you're going to have higher payout ratios. And if you look at comp- at um, you know sites like Seeking Alpha, a lot of these companies don't track REIT payout ratios correctly because they still they just want to look at EPS for everything. And with REITs, it's a little bit different. Is you don't want to look at earnings per share because you know owning real estate, you have uh, huge amounts of you know uh, depreciation that go into that, which is just you know a fancy accounting term um, for you know writing off buildings over a thirty year period. It's a non cash event. So instead, you want to look at what's called FFO, funds from operation, or even take it a step further and look at adjusted funds from operation. Just think of that as in a non-REIT world of looking at adjusted EPS. So with that is you want to look at the uh, adjusted funds from operation payout ratio just to kind of see what type of coverage they have. Um, And in terms of, you know, those ones, I'm going to look at more at uh, companies that can kind of adapt to the, uh, the world we're in right now. So we're in a period of high inflation. Right now, some of these REITs, like uh, think of uh, self storage, they can they can change their pricing on a dime. Something like uh, apartment REITs, you know, pricing can be changed pretty quickly. Whereas things like uh, net lease REITs that have long 10, 15 year contracts that go out, you know, th- those are really locked in for the most part. And you're going to have rent escalators that go in there, so they don't have that flexibility as much. So, but but to answer your question in terms of safety, it's going to be for REITs, it's going to be the the FFO a FFO payout ratio. Um, the macro headwinds for the sector that we're in and, and kind of along the same lines for non-REITs as well, just not looking at AFFO. We're going to look more at uh, free cash flow operating income and in, in the sector that we're in as well as the macro headwinds. Yeah, and I, I think you, you bring up a, a great point is, uh, you know, with, with, when it comes to dividend, you, you don't want to see that uh, these companies, one, ever really paying, utilizing, using debt to pay dividends. That just tells me, you know, that's, that's kind of the, the red flag right there that, this dividend may not have um, a lot left in the tank, at least, uh, especially in the near term. So, you know, bringing in the the debt component is a, a huge factor there um, for companies that do have high amounts of of debt. And um, you know, you, that, that's a great point because with, with REITs, you're gonna you have to because you're just not allowed to take on as uh, reinvest as much back into the business all the time, just given their uh, specific rules. And this, you know, the same is for for non REIT companies. You know, a lot of these companies do take on tons of mountain debt. And that, that can be a kind of a negative factor when we're looking at, uh, you know, companies that uh, consistently pay their dividends. And, you know, some of these that are striving to be or are already dividend aristocrats, you know, they want to be able to stay on this, this prestigious list that says, hey, this company has paid their dividend for 25 plus consecutive years, increased it every single year for the, that amount of time. Um, they may be, you know, in a, in a way like, hey, we, we still have to keep paying this dividend. So we stay on this list. Um, this is why a lot of folks are invested in us right now. You know, it kind of reminds me of, you know, the debacle of, of AT&T and their, their fall off. That, that's a whole nother story on mismanagement and stuff. But, 
just understanding that that debt component. And, you know, AT&T has massive amounts of debt over there. And um, so, so yeah, I, you bring up a great point is, is you do not want to see when it comes to dividend stocks, companies, number one, paying their dividend, but necessarily definitely not consistently paying their dividend utilizing debt. Yeah, no, great question. And, uh, you know, again, happy to be here. Thank you to, to Michael as well. You know, when it comes to dividends, I think it really comes down to the individual investor uh, in terms of a drip or taking cash. For me, I'm a very, I'm in the market every single day. Um, and I, in my early years, I, w- I always had the drip on. It was more of a hands-off approach. I had the, um, you know, more of the, I had the nine to five or, I'm, you know, I couldn't be on the, in, in my account every single day, it's just an easy way to uh, for investors to be to be hands off. And, and even if you're in the market every day, you, maybe you do still want to be a hands off investor, which, you know, just turning on that drip is an easy way to to kind of, you know, build wealth and allow that compounding process to take place. For me, um, I would say probably half of my investments are on drip. And it's something that I, I analyze on a, uh, a monthly quarterly basis is just really looking at valuations and knowing when um, companies are going to be paying out dividends. If I see a company that's paying out a dividend that you know maybe I don't have a ton of confidence in, maybe it's a sector that I see you know struggling in the near term, uh, something like uh, technology. Um, but you know if if healthcare on the flip side, you know that's probably something that I still have have turned on, and and that kind of moves on to the your other question is is in moving on to twenty twenty three and looking at the different sectors. So again, right now I'm I'm top heavy with. When it comes to healthcare, so if I were to open up my portfolio, you're going to see Johnson Johnson, AbbVie, and then as well as something like XLE. Um, so you know, with with energy still right now. Um, so that hopefully that kind of helps answer those. Um, but in terms of the drip, I think it, number one, it comes down to whether you want to be hands on or hands off, and just you know taking that those cash profits and and kind of redistribute them as you see fit, which is you know. A method that I use a lot because, again, I'm a hands-on investor looking at different valuations all the time. I may take something from, say, a uh, an ultra group that's going to pay me an eight percent dividend and turn around and say, okay, well, you know, I saw a fall off on uh, something like I don't own this stock right now, but Target, you know, they had a, a big fall off or they've had a, a huge fall off in in 2023. That may be a better place to kind of put my money for um, to kind of initiate a position and build. Uh, hopefully long-term gains and, and some dividend growth there as well. Mark, how do you think about um, <clears throat> yield competition, right? Because it's not just now uh, that there's more dividend ideas that you can play with, but obviously now your dividend stocks are competing against bonds. I, I actually think they're competing much more against CDs. I mean, certificates of deposits, which everyone left for dead for a long time, are actually, I think, where the most interesting near-term uh, income opportunities are, because there's also a guaranteed aspect to it up to a a certain amount, but how do you think about how higher yields across the board um, allow for, or maybe don't allow for, uh, interesting opportunities when it comes to stocks as opposed to bonds? Yeah, that's that's a great question, and you know, actually, one of the ones I get a lot is um, going, you know, kind of going back to to REITs is, you know, how, and I think it, it kind of is, is similar is, you know, REITs are are known for their, um, you know. The, a little bit higher yield in a way, but you know, over the past you know few decades, REITs have actually been one of the best performing asset classes, if not the best performing asset class. You know, outperforming the the S and P five hundred in terms of of total return. And a lot of folks say, okay, well, now we're going, we're in this period of of rising interest rates. Um, REITs are known for paying you know solid dividend yields. You may get you know slightly less in terms of share share appreciation, but when you look at the the correlation between you know REIT total returns and and ten year treasuries, um, you know in a time of of rising markets or uh, or or even tightening cycles, 
REITs have actually went hand in hand with those. So, you know, I think in, in only uh, three instances, was it, was it kind of the, the opposite? It, it kind of shows you that there's a, uh, you know, you still have a, a strong economy um, based on the data, you know, right now. Um, and it really increases the underlying real estate for, for REITs. So in, in these periods of, of high and, and rising interest rates, um, REITs have still proven to be a, a good investment. And, you know, really the time tested, you know, looking back at the data over the past 20 years, REITs have, have been a, a high performing asset class, um, something that a lot of folks, I don't, I don't um, you know, at least retail investors haven't, you know, truly understood the power. And I think it's, it's, it's gaining momentum in, in the retail world, understanding that, you know, it's a, another way to, to get involved and have that, that real estate exposure, which is one, you know, key aspect that, you know, I really appreciate and, and, and like to have, you know, in my, um, obviously I'm getting my dividend, I'm getting a nice yield, but I'm also allowing, you know, to expand my portfolio and, and get some of that real estate exposure as well. So, um, that, that's kind of a, a unique thing, uh, a question I do get a lot, especially as it pertains to REITs and the 10-year treasury. You know, I've done, um, I've done some quantitative back tests on REITs. REITs are really unique in the sense that there are times when it acts like a risk-off sector, meaning they outperform in high volatility, and there's times where they outperform in low volatility and they're like a risk-on sector. So there's not sort of a consistent degree of where you bucket it, right, in the context of offense versus defense depending on volatility dynamics. But also even from a um, from a momentum trading perspective, REITs tend to have, from my own research, much more quote-unquote underreaction, meaning more streaks in performance. And there's some logic to that, right? Because you don't necessarily know what the value of, of properties is real time. So sure. investors might be more conservative in how they're pricing a stock because they don't really know the underlying value of the assets, you know, um, minute by minute, right? So it's it just kind of more of an interesting dynamic. I always found REITs to be fascinating from a from a quant strategy perspective. Yeah, a- absolutely. I, and I think, you know, I, I may have uh, briefly touched on it, but, you know, there, there's just so many sectors of REITs, you know, and, and obviously there's ETFs as well. You think of, you know, VNQ as a way to, you know, get that broad spectrum. But I, I like to kind of focus on individual REITs. So I don't necessarily own a, uh, a REIT ETF just because, you know, it's something that I, you know, am hands-on a lot of is in the, the REIT sector. And again, writing with uh, with Brad Thomas and partnering with him. But I think the unique thing about REITs is is there are, it's just like the, the regular stocks where you have your health care, your, your big technology, your semis and stuff like that. It's the same with REITs as you have these what's called the uh, net lease REITs. Um, so you think of something like uh, Realty Income, um, which is a, a popular, you know, paying that, that monthly dividend, also known as the monthly dividend company. Um, you also have self-storage companies. So you think of, of public storage. And then one, I think my, um, if I were to look at my portfolio right now, I would say my highest uh, exposure is to Vici Properties, which is a gaming and hospitality REIT. They're the largest landlord uh, on the Las Vegas Strip. 45% or, or 50% of their entire exposure as a portfolio is there in Las Vegas. So they're they're they've honed in on that sector. And that's, you know, whether times are booming or um or we're, we're going through a recession, you know, looking back at, at 2009 or something, you, you're hard pressed to go to Vegas and find uh vacancies there, right there on the strip. And and Beachy now is the largest. They own um property assets. You think of Caesar's Palace, you think of the Venetian, you think now of MGM Grand, something they they recently purchased. They have even um Excalibur, they have uh, um, New York, New York, and you, you, all of these assets that you look at, it's just really, you know, fascinating there. And, and you're going to get, 
Um, so you get exposure to real estate, that property there, uh, and you're also going to get a, a nice dividend. So, and again, they're not, they're not the ones they have operators that are operating these casinos. They're just truly the landlords there. And it's hard pressed to find a, a time when, um, you know, Vegas real estate in a whole struggles. So that's kind of the unique thing that I like about REITs is, you know, you can find them in the healthcare sector, the gaming and, and hospitality, hotel REITs, self-storage REITs. You could have data center REITs. You know, American Tower is one where, you know, you could play the uh, the cellular uh, game with, with AT&T, T-Mobile, or Verizon, but you're, you're seeing it right now with the new iPhones that come out and how these, these three companies are just grappling and fighting with each other to try and get uh, customers. So their customer acquisition costs are through the roof, but yet they need strong coverage. And who do they go to? They go to American Tower, who's the one that owns all of these these cell towers, and they have these single tenant cell towers. They have dual tenant cell towers, and they have um, the the tri, which is all three of those are on one, which it just it, it skyrockets their their margin. So I would rather much play. I'd much rather play something like American Tower if I'm looking at cellular, and that you know, kind of continue to talk on that one um, is with five G and the rollout of five G across the, the nation and, and internationally. Is five G has you know ten times, hundred times, whatever it is, the speed of four G. But their uh, how far that data can move and transfer is only roughly like ten percent of what four G was. So that brings in a higher need for more cell towers. And who does that benefit? Something like American Tower. So you know that's another way to look at things is to look at these these dividend paying stocks from one standpoint, like a AT and T or Verizon. But look on the flip side, and who's providing all the infrastructure and the real estate component? And that's something like American Tower. Yeah, so uh, that's a great point there, and and you know Caesar's kind of that prize possession for Vici, and uh, they have a lot of um, master trade uh, le- uh, lease agreements with with their operators, so they'll have a ton of different um, uh, casinos that are kind of built into these master trade agreements. Um, and it's just under all one contract, but yeah, they do have the rent escalators in there. A portion of them are pegged to CPI. There are. Um, maxes on there and and you you know you bring up a good point and that another REIT that's like that that you know if you're interested in REITs is to look at is is one called WP carry that's stock ticker WPC and you know in the past they've had a huge exposure to office um they also had a management side of the business too that's kind of dwindling down but over the years you know over the past 5 or so years the company has moved itself and positioned itself strongly in the warehouse and industrial space. So, you know, actually the timing ended up working out great because once we hit a, a pandemic, a lot of folks are saying, you know, um, with, with people working from home and, and moving out and in, more into the, the suburbs or the rural uh, America and stuff like that, offices aren't, you know, as as much of a need anymore, which is, you know, shown in the, the office REIT sector, especially. But something like WP Carry with industrial and warehouse, you know, that's a huge play on e-commerce. So if you think e-commerce is you know, slowing or, you know, going to go away, we're going to go back to traditional brick and mortar. Um, you know, one, I would say, I, I don't, I don't think that's the case, but you know, I'm, I'm a huge proponent on industrial warehouse right now and, and the growth in e-commerce over the years, you know, we may be seeing a slowdown right now with a, a recession, but the, you know, going back to the idea of, of it, of rental agreements being pegged to CPI, they have 50% of their um, portfolio to warehouse into industrial but I, th- I think it's, and don't quote me here, I think it's roughly 55% of all of their leases are pegged to CPI, and some of them don't have a, a max on them. So that was kind of a uh, a fascinating portion on these rent escalators. So that's kind of a huge tailwind for something like uh, WP Carry with you know these rent step-ups that are going to be coming for a lot of these 
uh, operators in industrial and, and going back to Vici, it's, it's, it's very a high barrier of entry. You know, you can't just pick up a, uh, a casino and move it, you know, say you want to go out to, to Tahoe or something and, and move the whole casino over there. It's very difficult to do that. So not only do they have these long-term, um, assets, they have these long-term leases and they have these operators that have worked with them for a number of years. And, and, you know, it's a, a very difficult, uh, business to move. And that's one reason why they saw hundred percent occupancy. Um, and, you know, we're collecting at hundred percent during the pandemic when other REITs were down at, you know, 50, 60% or even, even lower. So that was a, a fascinating piece of, uh, to touch on with Vici. That's a, an interesting one to kind of, to kind of think about. And I guess it depends on, I mean, what, what, wouldn't it depend more on, um, whether it being a, a dividend growth stock. So think of something like uh, even, you can even go with American Tower. American Tower is increasing their their dividend at a, at a 20% clip. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I can see where, where that, that's coming from. That anything above, you're saying, if you spread it out over, say, a, we'll, so we'll I, say a 10-year period. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to bring up. So, so there are, there is going to be that, that piece of, uh, the, the component of, of premium or, or risk that you're going to be taking on with that. But yeah, generally anything above and beyond, like you said, would, would be alpha. So that's, that's a kind of a unique way to, um, to look at it. So um, yeah, I mean, that was, that was a great point. I, I am curious, Mark, um, let's go to healthcare for a bit. Um, any particular interesting names that you're either invested in or thinking about investing in that are worth maybe paying some attention to? So for me, one of my favorites and I, I, I trimmed it a little bit just because it was getting the exposure was getting a little bit high, and I've kind of written about it a lot on on, on Seeking Alpha over the years. But has been Avi stock ticker ABBV. So Avi, you know, I, I like to consider them the the investors trifecta, and, and the reason I call I've called it that for you know a number of years being is you know when I first saw Avi, you know, they had a, a dividend yield that was you know in excess of five percent when I started in, investing in them, and um, I think the the stock price initially was in the the 80s or so and you know they had if if you're not if you're unfamiliar with Avi they had the the best selling drug in the world for a number of years in Humira and and still happens to be here in the US um and and for years they they were kind of a, a one trick pony but you know with with Humira accounting for roughly 70% of the uh the, the total revenue for the company um but again it, it was the best selling drug in the world for uh for a number of years and the reason I call it the investor's trifecta is because they they offered growth potential in the share price. They offered a high yield dividend. I was getting 5%. But at the same time, they were also giving me dividend growth that was near 20%. I think they're at you know 17 and change show over the past five years on an annual basis, increasing that dividend, call it 18% per year. Um, it was kind of, you know, a perfect investment for, for me, um, you know, looking at the fundamentals, and um, the the component of the, the strong pipeline that they have, and now I think folks have caught on. The stock's up at one forty, one fifty, whatever it is now. Um, but we're also we've lost patent protection of Humera over in the international markets, which you've seen Humera drop off drastically. And now in twenty twenty three, Humera is going to be dropping off here in the U.S. as they lose patent protection as well, and, and other generics are able to to kind of come online in in twenty twenty three, but if you look at the the results, Humira now only accounts for less than forty percent of total company revenues. Now it's not going to go away completely. They're still making sales over internationally, and they're still going to make sales here in the U.S. just due to the 
effectiveness of the drug, but the pipeline is now coming to fruition. They, they, you know, a few years ago, they bought Allergan and then they've really diversified their portfolio to where they have other drugs, you know, and, and you may have seen them on uh, commercials on, on TV with Sky Rizzi or Invoke. They did one with Johnson Johnson uh, and Bruvica and, and all of these are, are performing quite well. They have um, high expectations for what these, uh, the peak that these drugs can reach in terms of total sales. Now they're not going to be a Humira, but it's going to be more of a sum of the parts. And I really like the direction of uh, where the management company is taking that. They still have a um, a, a solid uh, payout ratio, so the coverage is still there. I think the dividend's around four percent now, just given the the growth in the stock. But you know, um, that's still a still a name I like long term um, with the the patent protection from America kind of dropping off in twenty three. Sales are expected to. To slow um, because you know, as I mentioned, Rinvoke and Skyrizi are still uh, in their infancy stages, but they're they're growing at a rapid pace. When you look at the growth of them, so I think 2024 is really when things kind of kick back in the high gear. So if I see Avi kind of come down, I'm going to look to add um, back to to my position there. I think Johnson Johnson with uh, can view their roll up uh, um, or roll out of. Their consumer health, so you know they own everything from band-aids, Listerine, you know, toothpaste, and Motrin, Tylenol. That piece is going to be uh, rolled off of the Johnson Johnson, and they're going to focus more on um, their pharmaceutical and their medical device sales, which is a, a fast-growing segment. It'll be interesting to kind of see how the dividend plays out there because consumer health is that slow-growing, um, but it's still that cash flow printing machine that allows them to pay a dividend each and every year. And then, you know, outside of healthcare, I would say, you know, Starbucks is, has been a name that that I like. And, you know, they have a new CEO there. They um, have a big play on China. I know there's, it seems like there's a Starbucks on every corner here in the U.S. Um, the company has over, I think it's 35,000 stores. Um, but and, but the, the loyalty of the rewards members, you know, they have nearly 30 million active rewards members, people that have used um, their Starbucks rewards in the last, you know, couple of months there. And that just continues to grow year over year, quarter over quarter. And the, the growth, just to kind of give you an idea on the growth over in Starbucks, they're expecting, um, this is not just like in the next 12 months, this is over the next three years. They're expecting a new store in China to open up every nine hours, which was quite fascinating. And to kind of put into perspective the growth that they're looking for over in uh, over in that region. I, and maybe for the final few minutes, uh, I think it's always important to think through cell discipline, right? So you can do all the due diligence in the world, but sometimes things happen, dividend yields have to get cut, dividends have to get cut, rather. Um, what makes you totally abandon a position you already have? And has there ever been a situation for you, Mark, where uh, you're in a stock for the dividend, the dividend gets cut, but you still hold on to it for other reasons? I had some, uh, you know, during the, the pandemic, I had, you know, a number of REITs that, that would get, uh, that had their dividends cut. And, you know, for me, it goes back to, you know, I, I always want to have a thesis on why I invest in a stock. You know, you look at the fun, fundamentals, but, you know, generally put together a thesis on why you invested the stock and analyze that over whether it's quarterly, uh, every, a couple times a, a year, annual basis. Go back and look at your thesis. Does, does the, is that still intact? The reasons that I originally invested in the stock, is that still the same reason today? Is the company operating on well, what I expected and what I saw when I originally invested? That's number one. And then, you know, looking at the dividend, a dividend cut is a, is, is a red flag for me. But it goes back to the fundamentals of the company and, uh, you know, why they do it. Was it a forced thing? And one name that comes to mind is Simon Property Group. Um, they're the, obviously the largest mall landlord. Again, going back to another REIT here. So their stock to SPG, they pay a, a high dividend, but they, their dividend was cut during the, the pandemic. 
Um, and for, for what good reason, you know, everyone was locked up in their, in their homes and no one was going to the, the shopping centers that they own. But again, they, I understand the quality of the real estate that they own. They own some of the, the highest quality malls, uh, premium outlets out there in the U S today. And, and people still want to go shopping. And, and when you see a lot of these mall closures and you see it in the news, it's a lot of these C and D rated malls, even some of them B rated malls. Simon Property Group has an A-rated portfolio, and how these are classified is based on their retail sales per square foot. So it's not just them classifying or, or some re. It's just it's it's data based on the tenants that you bring in. What is their retail sales per square foot? And there's a classification, you know, A plus, A, B, C, D, and a lot of these C and D are the ones that were shutting down. Well, Simon Property Group, when you look at them, they're um, they're an A-rated mall based on their increasing retail per uh, square foot. And you know a lot of folks were saying malls are dying, malls are dying. Well, if you continue to look year over year, Simon Property Group continued to increase leading up to the pandemic. And now you know they're starting to see that, that uptick in, in traffic uh, once again. So you know I understand the quality there. Dividend got cut, but it's still a stock that I, um, I held on to. And, and I have trimmed in, in, in the periods in between. But um, didn't just completely sell out of it just due to a, a dividend cut. All right. For those that want to uh, track you, Mark, on a go-forward basis, get a sense of your ideas, your thoughts, what are some of the uh, best ways people can reach you? Yeah. So here on, on Twitter, I'm just uh, at dividend underscore dollar. So you know, I, I write um, you know, multiple tweets throughout the day. You can also find me on YouTube, and that's just under my, my uh, personal name, which is Mark Rusin, R-O-U-S-S-I-N-C-P-A. So we have a growing uh, a YouTube channel there. And then the Dividend Investors Edge is my my weekly newsletter, completely free, that goes out on a weekly basis. And you can find that on Substack. Very good. Thank you, everybody, for joining. I'm doing another uh, space at 9 Eastern tonight, uh, talking options. Uh, and everybody, if I don't see you, enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you, Mark. Really do appreciate it. Thank you, Michael. Have a great day, everyone. Cheers, everybody. The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at LeadLag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube, and check out the LeadLag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.